Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney. I'm Ryan Stanton, and this week, we're starting something new. 2SER is proud to partner with TEDx and Macquarie University to bring you some of their trademark ideas worth spreading. Over the next hour, and in the coming weeks, you're going to hear from some of the speakers at Macquarie University's TEDx event discussing a variety of issues, from issues of inequality to the healing power of cake. Each talk brings you a new idea that, in the spirit of TED Talks, we think is worth spreading. Today, the focus is on rethinking commercial identity in all spheres of life. Writer and baker Nadine Ingram discusses how to be authentic in business, sharing stories from her cult bakery, Flower and Stone, as she does so. Meanwhile, entrepreneur Rachel Service discusses the difficulty that comes with your public identity being part of your brand and what happens when your identity begins to change. But first, considering these talks are brought to us thanks to Macquarie University, it's appropriate that we start with Professor Debbie Haskey-Leventhal. Professor of Management at the Macquarie Business School, Debbie's talk, fittingly enough, prompts us to rethink the purpose and identity of universities. Oh, And just a note before we play her talk for you, like some of the other speakers, Debbie uses and makes note of slides. Her talk still makes sense, but you may miss a reference or two. So if you want the full experience, feel free to head to YouTube and search for TEDx Macquarie University. There's a playlist with all the talks for you to watch and get the complete story. Now, with that out of the way, here's Debbie. What is the purpose of universities and what is the role in the world? Many would say it's to educate students and conduct research, and this is true, but somehow focusing too narrowly on these two goals got us to be perceived as ivory towers and detached um, institutions for the elite. I believe many universities still focus too narrowly on ranking, profits, and graduate income instead of the impact that we can create in society and in the world. Really hit me recently when I looked at the top Google search results for universities are. (laughs) This is very revealing, isn't it? To me, this is a broken system, something that needs to be fixed profoundly and urgently. How did we get here? No university wants to be a dying, failing, scam, a joke, useless, or of course, hostile to geniuses. With recent admission scandals in the US and university leadership corruption elsewhere, with focusing too much on impact factors instead of social impact, and on how much our graduates make instead of the difference that they can make, is what got us here. What we need is to become more impactful and purposeful. What we need is a purpose-driven university. My personal journey towards the idea of the purpose-driven university started when I was 20. 
I just moved from my hometown in Tel Aviv to study philosophy at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I was the first one of my large extended family to go to uni. My mother only had 10 years of schooling and her mother never got to go to school and was illiterate. My parents couldn't really understand why it was so important for me to go to university, especially studying something as impractical as philosophy. Not only did I not have their emotional support, but I also did not have their financial support. And so I often went through the week hungry because I did not have the means to support myself. In order to survive, I started taking on some odd student jobs. And I started typing assignments for students back in the era where not every student had a laptop. My computer was not too good looking either. But what I did next completely changed my life. I joined a tutoring program, which is like Big Brother, Big Sister, where university students get to work with a child, usually from disadvantaged family, for a year. And in return, you get half your tuition fee waived. I desperately needed the financial support, so I started working with this kid. He was an eight-year-old boy, lovely, talented, a little bit nerdy and he got bullied a lot. His teacher told me that she was really worried about his future, something that stayed with me for years. I often wondered what happened to him. But I really felt like I made a difference in this boy's life, and I loved it, so I continued volunteering for another year with another kid. Then I became the volunteer coordinator and the vice manageress of the entire project. At the age of 24, I was in charge of 1,000 volunteers and absolutely loved it. So then I went on to do a master's degree in not-for-profit management and a PhD on volunteering. You see, what I studied in my first degree was important, and a lot of it stayed with me until today. But it was this extracurricular activity that really changed my life and my career, leading me to where I am today, a professor of volunteering and corporate social responsibility. As a professor of corporate social responsibility, I see companies that are completely led by purpose. Companies like Patagonia, who care so much about the environment, they actually ask you not to buy their products. Company like Ben & Jerry's, who say, we're a company with a social mission, we just happen to make ice cream. I see CEOs like Paul Polman completely shifting the direction of a multinational corporation towards sustainability and responsibility with his sustainable living plan. When these companies do that, they engage employees, they recruit talent, they enhance the reputation in the community. My question to you is, why can't universities do the same? If I could work anywhere, I'd love to work for a purpose-driven organization like that but I'm an academic. I work really hard to become who I am, and I love what I do. So a couple of years ago, I started asking myself, what if, which is always a great exercise. What if universities could become more purpose-driven? What if universities could utilize their resources, their knowledge, amazing intellect, their people, even their physical campuses to create and impact in the communities in which they operate, global community, and the environment as well. I started asking myself, why does the world need us? And if we were to close down tomorrow, what would be lost forever, 
and why should anyone care? So I started diving into this, and what I discovered was remarkable examples of universities undergoing a transformational change, shifting away from the obsession of being the best in the world to being best for the world. Like the University of Pennsylvania, working to bring out Western Philly out of poverty. Columbia University, reaching out to refugees, even sending its teachers to work in refugee camps. Bentley University, where students use Skype to teach English to students in Afghanistan. Stanford, using its amazing research capabilities to fight poverty. And here in Sydney, UTS, with its remarkable social impact framework centered around the idea of it being an agent for social change. What these universities are doing is discovering their purpose, which is the reason for which something is done um, or created or for which something exists. That got me thinking about what was the original purpose of universities and about the connection between the word university and universe, which is a whole. Because universities were supposed to be a whole community of scholars studying together to make the world a better place. We somewhat shifted away from this original purpose. When I talk about purpose-driven universities, what I'm actually talking about is impact purpose. It's the purpose of helping others, benefiting others, making a difference in someone else's life, like this boy I helped all these years ago. Impact purpose gives you a sense of meaningfulness, purposefulness, even happiness. And so I hear a lot of students and other young people say that they're waiting to find their purpose, to discover their purpose. And my message to them and to you is, don't wait to discover your purpose. No one is going to be knocking on your door with a FedEx, here is your life purpose. What you need to do is start living a purposeful life, and you can do that by finding the sweet spot between what you're good at, what gives you joy, and the impact that you can create while doing those things. This is not just for people, it's also for organizations. And on an organizational level, the purpose is an aspirational reason for being, something that inspires and provides a call for action not just for the organization, but also for its stakeholders to benefit the local and global society. So you could see how purpose is often tied to benefiting others. So what I've done, I've taken all these ideas, put them together, and defined what a purpose-driven university is. And I say it utilizes its resources, knowledge, talent, and people to continuously work with its stakeholders to benefit the communities and the environment in which it operates through research, teaching, and service. This is important because universities are often public organizations. They rely on the money of their students, governments, or even donors, and as such, should be held accountable and should create impact beyond providing students with diplomas, which they may or may not use, conducting research and publishing articles, which may or may not get cited. This is also important because students now come to expect that from us. I marched yesterday with my two daughters in the Climate Action March, and I saw an amazing generation 
tens of thousands of young people who are purpose-driven and they know what they want and they know how to ask for it. Uh, in the last few um, years, I've been working with the United Nations Prime to um, ask business students to do research about business students around the world. And I've asked them, how much would you be willing to forego of your future salary to work for a responsible employer? And I was shocked to discover that 95% of the students would be willing to forego some level of their salary and that one in five students would be willing to sacrifice more than 40%, 40% of their future salary to work for an employer who is holistically responsible. That is a very strong signal our students are sending us as their educational institutions and their future employers. A purpose-driven university doesn't only define its purpose, living by it, embedding it, working with the community to achieve it, and then sharing a, an incredible story of impact. Such a university also enables its staff to, and its students to declare their purpose and live by it. Erasmus University in the Netherlands, with its Rotterdam School of uh, Management, encourages students and staff to declare their purpose through the I Will campaign. I will inspire people to adopt a sustainable lifestyle. I will ensure RSM is a force for positive change in the world, and I will give voice to the silent are just some of the thousands of purpose statements collected to date. So why should universities change and why should they care about becoming more purpose-driven? Because research shows us that purpose-driven organizations have a positive impact on people, the organization, and the community. On the micro level, people are more engaged and enthused when they work for such an organization. They get to um, share a narrative of change which gives them a sense of affiliation and pride. On the organizational level, the organization gets an enhanced brand and reputation, better performance, but what is important is that a purpose-driven university, for example, can become the destination of choice for purpose-driven people, people who are intrinsically motivated to achieve and help others. Most importantly, such a university, such an organization can create a positive impact on society and the community. The time for a purpose-driven university movement is now. Business as usual is no longer an option for universities. If we continue down this road, we're going to expose ourselves to scrutiny and criticism and stakeholder pressure and even lose more legitimacy. We need to become a force for good in the world, really focusing on our connection with the community and how we can better contribute to it. If university leaders don't start leading this, students are gonna show them the way, and they already are. There are student movements all around the world which are showing us what it means to be sustainable, responsible, what it means to have social activism in our campuses. 
It's time for university leaders, staff, students, and other stakeholders to work together to define the purpose of each university, live by it, work with the community to achieve it, and then share an incredible story of impact and change. I recently found this little boy I worked with all these years ago. He may have been a fragile 80-year-old, but he's no longer fragile now. He's a director of a leading IT company and a family person with two kids of his own. And he still remembers me. My university did not just provide me with education. It provided me with a life-changing opportunity to live a purposeful life and to find my own purpose, which today I define as using my own knowledge, research, and teaching to create a positive impact on the world. This is what a purpose-driven university is all about. Thank you. Debbie Haskey-Leventhal there, ending her talk, The Purpose-Driven University. And if you're still a little bit confused as to what a purpose-driven university looks like, don't worry. I spoke with Debbie myself to get some more information on what this new form of a university may be, what it may look like, and why the time for purpose-driven universities is now. Let's take a listen. The first question I want to ask, and it's one I'm asking a lot of people, is how did you get involved in this TEDx talk? Um, I was just talking to one of my colleagues, and he mentioned that he was going to have a meeting uh, regarding TEDx. And I said, oh, that's something I always wanted to do. So he gave me the contact details um, of Hosai, and then I contacted her. We had a Skype meeting, and uh, she loved the idea, and, and we moved forward with it. All right, sweet. Uh, you mentioned that it's been a dream of yours. Did you always know you wanted to talk about this for TEDx or not? Well, it was kind of on my bucket list to do a TEDx talk one day. Um, but in the last two years, as I've been working on the idea of a purpose-driven university, I thought if I were ever to do a TED talk, this is what I'd like to talk about. What led you to focusing on purpose-driven universities in your research? So in my research in the last 15 years, uh, when I did my PhD, I did my PhD on volunteering, like I mentioned in the TED Talk, um, and I was really interested in altruistic behavior of individuals. And then as I moved to business education and, and business research, I started looking at uh, pro-social behavior of corporations, so corporate social responsibility. And what I've seen was a lot of companies uh, that were using their power, their resources, their money and influence as a force for good. And so one day I started asking myself, why can't universities do the same? We don't see a lot of university social responsibility um, in research or in practice. Um, so I started looking into that and I did discover um, individual examples of universities that are doing amazing things, but no one was talking about it, no one was connecting these efforts, uh, no one was defining it as such. And so I thought there is a great 
um, scope for someone to start talking about the role of universities in society and in the community. Why do you think, in comparison to businesses and companies, that it's been so disparate and uh, niche for universities to adopt these socially conscious attitudes? Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. One is they think they're already achieving their purpose by educating students and conducting research. Um, But it's just like businesses say that we um, achieve our purpose by um, producing products, creating products that people need, and employing people and providing them with jobs. And that's what everyone does. So if you want to differentiate yourself through social impact, you need to see how you can create um, further contribution to the world and not just stop there. And I I also think, you know, being an academic, I know that a lot of academic institutions have this obsession of being the best in the world and, and really focusing on elitism instead of trying to look at how we can best serve. And I think this service mindset was missing from academic institutions for a really long time. This service mindset, I want to dig a bit more into Mm. that. Different universities might end up serving different purposes. They won't all have the same purpose, correct? Uh, That's correct, yes. That's correct. The idea is how how do you utilise what you do best as an institution, as an organization, to serve the world. So for one university, that could be, for example, their outstanding medical research and and, uh, medicine school, and that would be their way to serve the world, whereas another university would have the best cutting-edge business education research, and that would be their way to serve the world. But it's always moving beyond just giving students diplomas um, and conducting research is how do we use education and how do we use research to improve the quality of life for people, to improve the um, survival of our planet and, and so on. Right, right. And what role might students be able to play in helping with this service? I think students, in a way are becoming the frontrunners of this movement. Um, while some, not everyone, but some academic leaders don't really see the need to be more purpose-driven, uh, many um, students care very deeply about issues of sustainability and, and social responsibility. And so they are also starting this movement bottom-up. So there are a lot of students' organizations and students' uh, movements that are aimed at creating social good. Um, And there is a lot that we can learn from these students and really collaborate and partner with them, join um, forces to to create a more positive impact on the world. Um, I think they're nothing less than the emerging leaders of this movement towards purpose. You mentioned in your talk that you're the first in your family to have gone to university. Mm. Do you think this has shaped your perceptions of what a university should be like? Do you think it's influenced your ideas behind this purpose-driven university? Maybe. Uh, I think that when you have to really struggle and fight for what you get, you become more appreciative and grateful for what you've got. 
And um, I think that's what led me to look at how everyone can can make a better contribution to, to the world. Um, so I think it also maybe allowed me to look at the whole idea of higher education in a new way because no one in my family ever went to university. And so it was a the whole experience was completely new for me and for my family. And I think that enabled me to look at everything in a sort of a critical reflection, but also with a fresh eye. You said in your talk that the time for purpose-driven universities is now. What about this moment in time is uniquely suited to that? There are a few factors, but I think the most important one is the sense of urgency. Um, the Especially with the environment. I mean, look what is happening right now in Australia with climate change, climate action, the drought, the fires. There is a sense of urgency that we all need to come together and, and contribute. And that could be directly to to the current emergency, but it can also be to the factors that led to it or to the community that is affected by it. Um, and I think this generation of students who grew up with climate change, um, who grew up with the, with the idea of the, we need to take urgent action towards climate change, um, is the kind of generation that's driving this, um, this movement and this shift. And that's why um, this is one of the factors that's leading into it. I also think because we've reached a point now where corporate social responsibility and sustainability are now the mainstream in business, that we are starting to look at other kinds of organizations, and that could also be governmental organizations, and, and ask, what are you doing to help the situation? And, and I think there is a growing expectation that, university will contribute more greatly to society and the the community than what they currently are. Is there anything else you want to say on the matter? Any final words before we let you go? (laughs) Um, I think that there are a lot of people doing very important work, but they do it in silos. So that would be me, but that would be many other people in the university, in other universities, students, academic stuff, and and even leaders. And I think it really is um, a beautiful moment in time to rise up to the occasion and work together to achieve this. That was Debbie Haskey-Leventhal there talking to me about what a purpose-driven university may look like. This is Talk of the Town on 2SER, bringing you coverage of events around Sydney. This week, we're bringing you all the TEDx talks from Macquarie University's recent event that deal with business and business identity. Our next speaker is bakery owner Nadine Ingram, giving her talk, How to Be Authentic in Business. For Nadine, being authentic is about human connection, and doing more with less. Let's take a listen. So I'm going to start from the beginning because that has informed my values and all the bits in between 
have inspired my purpose. This is an idea that I want to share with you today. When I was growing up, all the life lessons were around not shouting about your successes. Don't be flashy. Stay small by practicing humility. And most importantly, don't forget where you came from. As a child, I spent a lot of time indoors learning how to bake. This, eventually, I discovered that this gave me a connection to people through my heart. My love for baking began with the humble scone and took me across the other side of the world to London, into the gritty Michelin-style restaurants, where I learned how to make the best tart citron and the best fine apple tart, amongst other things. I began to notice a focus to my baking that engaged my senses and intuition, but there was something missing in that experience for me. I felt there was a disconnect between me and the people that I was baking for. Not long after I came back to Australia, I made a departure from big restaurants, and I went to work in a small bakery. This was a huge turning point for me, because finally I could see and talk to the customer, and I started to get a sense of what was possible for my own place. Eventually, I found this tiny bakery on the outskirts of inner-city Sydney. It was a little rough around the edges and off the beaten track, but it subscribed to those fundamental lessons in my childhood, and I knew I could achieve everything I wanted to here. It was a chance for me to share a philosophy, an idea that I think should be embraced by more businesses, to preserve community, artistic engagement, and human connection from our hearts. In my bakery, there are 12 seats, which are always full, and a queue that runs out the door for most of the day. It's cosy, warm, intimate, and friendly, and the counter is overflowing with voluptuous lemon dream cakes, towering platters of date scones, and a fine apple tart that reminds me of the London lessons in my life. I was standing behind the counter last Saturday, and I took a moment to look up. On one table, there was an elderly couple canoodling over a meringue. They still had that sparkle of love in their eyes, as they did in their youth. On that day, they'd stolen away a moment to sit in one another's orbit, and ponder the sweetness of life. At the table next to them, there was a woman curled up, deep in conversation with a morning bun. And I could see that there was nothing that would have roused her from the embrace of that cinnamon hug. <laughs> there was a gentleman in the queue wearing a dark navy suit, standing next to his beautiful wife, who was wearing the most exquisite fascinator. They had the look of sunshine beaming from their faces, as if nothing could be wrong in their world. They were there to collect the wedding cake for friends of theirs who were having a small gathering to celebrate their promise to one another. 
So I went back to the kitchen to collect the wedding cake, and I helped the couple carry it to their car. I embraced the woman with a celebratory hug and waved them off. I practically skipped back along the pavement to the bakery, where Coconut, the office dog, is patiently waiting for crumbs as usual. <laughs> That was a cake for joy. Then there are the cakes, like the cakes I delivered to Rena one day. Rena had won an angel competition in our newsletter. It was an opportunity for our customers to nominate somebody who they thought deserved to be crowned an angel, and in return, we would send them a cake. Rena was nominated by her daughter Diane. When Diane's twins were just four and a half months old, she received the devastating news that she had acute myeloid leukemia. Rena left her home and family interstate. To come and help Diane and her husband Josh look after the babies and the household during this traumatic time, Rena put her life on hold to help her daughter, so that she could focus on getting better. She was undoubtedly an angel, and I couldn't wait to deliver the cake to her. The evening before I was due to deliver the cake, we received the crushing news that Diane had passed away. Following a family vigil by her bedside, so I would be delivering a cake to a woman who had lost her mother only hours, who had lost her daughter only hours before. When I arrived at the house, I was ushered around the outside of the home by a family member, where everyone was sitting in the garden. It was so quiet and sombre, and I wanted the earth to swallow me up. But I knew I had no right, so I went to Rena and I put the cake in her lap. Her arms hung heavy by her side, and it was as though somebody had switched off a light behind her eyes. With this cake, I wanted to take her grief and wrap it around my shoulders like a coat, and walk away. But I knew no cake. Or even the love that I gave it with could be so powerful. That was a cake for sorrow. Muhammad Ali says that our service to people is the rent that we pay for our room on Earth. And whilst I will never be a doctor or a brain surgeon, I know my place in the universe, and I know my service to people. And I think it's fair to say that the healing power of cake should never be underestimated. <laughs> There is a community value to being small that I am aware of when people cross the threshold of my bakery. It's these connections that we are craving from one another, whether we are aware of it or not. On some days, the transcending love from these interactions is palpable. We can feel that energy from the kitchen, and personally, it's one of the best bits of my day. Of course, there's always a few whispers in the queue from people who don't understand why we won't expand. The thing is, that would be the easiest thing for me to do for my business. 
I never imagined it would be so hard to stay small. But is my one constant ambition. I'll tell you why. The necessity by all of us to start being more with less has never been more current. Instead, there is this obsession to expect the traditional route of expansion from a business that's doing well. Get a new production space, move everything off-site, and in the case of a bakery, invest in chemical sprays to mimic the smell of freshly baked bread so that people still think there's bakers out the back. In my opinion, you can't fake this stuff. People know when there's something missing, and it's usually the heart. We are all begging for authenticity from one another. Be yourself. Do you. Even Dr. Seuss says there's no one newer than you. <laughs> so if you're an artist and you want to live your life enveloped by creativity, what would be the motivation to grow big? This progression is normally an, an endeavour to fuel one of two things, money or ego. Our most popular cake is the lemon drizzle cake. It reminds people of a simpler time. It has nothing to hide behind except a thin veil of white icing. And so it is also an honest cake. It's timeless and comforting and evokes a sense of joy that lifts the spirit. So it's no surprise that in this world, in a world full of turmoil, that this is the favourite cake. So let's imagine we were to start making more lemon drizzle cake if we expanded. The 20-litre bowl that we've been making it in for the last seven years isn't big enough anymore. So we have to start making it in a 40-litre machine. The problem is that the paddle overwhips the butter and when the cake goes into the oven, it souffles around the edges, and it's not the same cake anymore. But we have to keep making this cake because we've just spent all this money on the expansion, and we need to pay back the bank. People keep coming for a while because there's still nothing close to the joy of that lemon drizzle cake that reminds them of their grandma. Maybe they tell a few people along the way. It doesn't matter because now we're churning out this cake in mass volumes. It offsets a few customers that we lose along the way. But then the problem is, the baker has lost connection with her craft. Whereas before she could feel the lemon zest as she folded it through the batter, now the machine does that for her. She's also disillusioned because she can no longer feel the energy of her teammate beside her making the apple tarts. So what is all that excess space doing there, besides separating us from our desire to connect? It's this desire to connect which is the emotional value of why I want to stay small. It's this connection through our hearts and minds which is the secret of our success. There are so many challenges that my team has to navigate on a daily basis to remain small. But it's these winding pathways that take us along the road less travelled 
albeit the hardest route to explore a richer experience. It's these interactions that give us that insight into our differences. And when you really get to know one another, you realise we are all just the same. You can't replicate that in big business. And so remaining small has become my purpose to maintain being in touch. This is something that is so often sacrificed for growth or money. So what if we didn't have money? What would we do differently? What if the reason for business was to fulfil purpose and the success of your business was measured on how well you carried out your purpose? This is my purpose. These are the commodities that I reap from my, from my business, shown here on my generosity cake. The reason that doing business like this might be perceived as a little bit idealist and spiritual is because we're so conditioned to understand the fluent language of the business world being money. But we need to talk about these things too. As the owner of a very successful business, I can tell you that there are direct indicators that derive from all of the pieces of my generosity cake that contribute to my success, and none of them are money. You will not find any of them on a P&L. So wouldn't it be amazing if the commodities of going to work every day were community, creative engagement, and human connection from the heart? I can tell you that there is no amount of money that will make you richer. Thank you. That was Nadine Ingram's talk, How to Be Authentic in Business. Like Debbie before her, Nadine's talk challenges listeners to rethink the way they view the identity of some key industries present in society. For both, authenticity is a key part of the maintenance and running of these industries. Our final talk for today is also about authenticity, but it approaches the topic with a more critical eye. If being authentic and true to yourself is what makes you or your brand successful, what happens when who you are changes? This is one of many questions raised by Rachel Service in her TED Talk, How to Break Up with Your Public Identity. Rachel is the creator of Happiness Concierge and Mojo School, whose motto, Ace Work and Life, emphasizes the organization's dedication to helping businesses and individuals improve. Their clients have included the Reserve Bank of Australia, Luxury Escapes, and Moet Hennessy, and their goal of encouraging positivity and productivity in both work and life has reached thousands. Listen on to hear Rachel discuss the genesis of her business, how personal change has affected it, and an explanation of how to break up with your public identity. After experiencing anxiety, depression, and burnout, not once, not twice, but three times in my short career, I realised there was just one person who could help me. Who do we think that was? 
Beyonce. <laughs> and so I bought a ticket to a New York concert. <laughs> Obviously. And I cried, no, <laughs> silly me, I sobbed <laughs> for two hours all through, uh-oh, 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 to, I'm a, a diva, I'm a, I'm a, a diva, <laughs> to, I can see your halo. <laughs> and I was crying because I was exhausted. I was fed up of feeling that the life I was living didn't match the person I was inside. So I did what any millennial would do, started a blog. <laughs> and I documented my processing to get my mojo back. Hello, mojo, this is Rayonce speaking. Where are you at? And through this processing, I started documenting. How do I identify what I want? How do I say no? What are boundaries? How do I show my public self to the world in a way that feels safe? And it turns out other people felt this way too. And a lot of people connected with that. And this blog wasn't just for population one, Rayonce, anymore. Other people started emailing me. Thank you for sharing this experience. It's nice to know I'm not alone. All of a sudden, this blog became so much more than me, it became a community. I started meeting friends, many of whom are here today. I started to feel like myself again. I started to not only remember who I was, but discover who I was. And I started to share my story publicly by public speaking. Never met a microphone I didn't like, so it wasn't really a huge stretch. But it was to share my story. And slowly, out of the woodwork, organizations would ask me afterwards, would you mind coming to our workplace to share your story? And Workplaces would say, would you mind sending a team to uh, share the story and how we might overcome burnout? Before I knew it, five years had gone by and I was running the business of burnout. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had this incredible team and clients to die for. <laughs> An amazing work and work that I'm proud of. And here's the thing, that story that built that brand, I don't relate to that story anymore. Because while that's the public story, the private story is, I've worked so hard to not be burnt out anymore. I'm no longer burnout rage. So the question that I'm grappling with now is, if your identity becomes a brand and that brand becomes a public identity, what happens when you outgrow that brand, right? 
What happens when you can no longer relate to the public version of yourself that's out there? If true authenticity is your private self and your public self agreeing to meet in the middle, what happens when you outgrow that identity? This was highlighted to, to me quite recently when I went to hire a sales rep. And she said no to the job. <laughs> and she said no, not because she didn't love the brand, or the logo, or the clients, or the work, or the experience, or the people, or the products, but because the person who rocked up to that meeting wasn't the person she fell in love with on stage. Burnout rage. The person who came to that meeting was a business rage. The person that I had to become to run that business. So that cognitive dissonance between what she was expecting and her aversion of my identity and who I have become privately didn't match. And that's the tension, isn't it? If true authenticity is having the privilege of sharing your true self with the world in real time, how do I do this when I'm growing and evolving? When my private identity is now a public identity and I no longer relate to that burnout rage? It's tricky. Bit awkward. I figured I started this publicly, I might as well figure it out publicly. <laughs> but the truth is, it's lonely business, isn't it? Growth, like ambition, is lonely. That's what they don't tell you about entrepreneurialism. That continual balance of, this is who I am, who am I? <laughs> But I'm ready. But who am I really? Rayonce, who are you? Who are you really? <laughs> right? <laughs> I get asked a lot, you know, what's the secret to happiness? What's the secret to being fulfilled? And the answer is, if you must know, you have one of two options. Option one, instead of looking to the past for, I wish life was like that time, and instead of looking to the future of, why don't I have what I want yet? We must sit in our life right now and agree or decide that we are willing to accept where we are right now. And then rock it and enjoy it and get on with being an awesome family member and friend and partner and student and business person. Like, let's get on with living, right? And the other option is, and this one's a little bit more complicated, we have to do the work to grow. And let me tell you, it is work. Because while we all want to learn, not all of us want to, are willing to, or statistically will, grow. Because growing's hard, isn't it? It requires that number one, we stop lying to the first person we start lying to when life doesn't feel so ace. Ourselves. Number two, got to tell the world about it. No thanks. 
How many of you wake up in the morning and you think, today's a day. Today is a day that I tell my friends, family, and those who know me, love me, trust me, respect me to say, hi, I am who you think I am, but I might not be tomorrow. Are we cool? Are we cool? <laughs> How many of you feel like doing that? The third part to growth is that we actually have to do something about it. And true growth is work. It requires we act differently, speak differently, maybe truthfully, but it also requires that we sit in that awkward tension of, what if people reject me? Is it safe to be my real self? My real, real self? Beyonce's husband, Jay-Z, raps in the song, Most Kings. People look at you strange, say you've changed, like you're doing all this work to stay the same. And that last line, that last line gets me when I'm past starting to work. Like I worked this hard to stay the same, but that's it. I've done all this work. For some reason, why do I feel trapped by what I've created? What do I feel trapped? Where our identity is in the current, when it meets our future identity, that's where imposterdom, the voices of your inner critic, sometimes your own voices come to play where our current and our future identity meet. It's that tension, isn't it? When we're in the comfort zone and we're in our learning zone, and just before we're in our panic zone, it's that awkward dance of, oh my gosh, what if they reject me? Am I really this person? Am I person? Maybe, maybe I should just pretend it. Maybe I don't need to wear a pink suit. Maybe it's not who I am anymore. <laughs> That's tiring and scary, isn't it? Yeah. This all came to a head to me recently when I got a little phone call from Ted. And I said, of course I'd love to come and speak. Yes! <laughs> and I said, without even thinking, but I won't be speaking about burnout, burnout, burnout anymore. So then I had six weeks to figure out what my new identity was. <laughs> Nothing like a deadline is there, I suppose. <laughs> and that last six weeks has been horrific. I've been sharing with my friends. Well, that's not true. <laughs> Those who have signed the NDA. <laughs> What's really been going on for me? It's funny because it's true. <laughs> I've been having runs. Well, not runs. Stress cries. Where I go for a run, but for some reason the phone comes in and saying, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> Maybe it's not the year to do a TED Talk. And it's also involved me saying to my fiancé, wake up, wake up, I've figured out what my new identity is. <laughs> and her saying, do you need to have it done by Ted? Because <laughs> as a marketer, I'm thinking, relaunching without a new narrative? Are you mad? Because branding a brand without a narrative is like a branding kryptonite. What brands are are stagnant and they stay the same. The thing about identities are that they're continually evolving. So how do I do this? How do I break up with my public identity? 
Well, what I've learned through the last few weeks as a summation of my experiences is this. I gotta stop lying to myself. I'm not burnout rich anymore, and that's a good thing. You ever said that out loud? Thank you. <laughs> Number two, I need to share it with people I trust, respect, and value enough to allow it to be true, who allow me to be safe enough to do that, who are allowing to withhold their fears and anxieties to allow me to be my true self. The third thing I have to do, I have to take action. I feel that me and 500 of my closest friends talking about it out loud as an action. Do you feel like that could be counted as an action? Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> the last thing, the one I haven't quite figured out yet. I have to reframe my fear of uncertainty. What will my friends think, my family think, my team think, my clients think, Instagram think? What will they think? <laughs> and reframe that into opportunity. What if, what if I was living a life that reflected who I really was inside? Instead of worrying about being lonely, what if this is the greatest thing to happen to me? So the question I want to leave you with is this. Does my life reflect the person who I am inside? Does my life reflect the person that I'm becoming and will become? And if not, welcome to my life. <laughs> but imagine if I could. And more to the point, imagine if it did. Imagine if it did. That was Rachel's service, ending that TEDx talk, How to Break Up with Your Public Identity. You've been listening to 2SER's Talk of the Town, featuring talks from the TEDx Macquarie University event. These talks were brought to you both by TEDx and by Macquarie University. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have in this episode. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with another TEDx episode discussing all types of gender-related issues. For this or more talk of the town, go to 2SER.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ryan Stanton, and thanks for listening. <laughs>